1978, creators Wendy and Richard Kinney introduced us to a tribe of forest-dwelling elves who, after being driven from their home, found themselves on a journey. That journey was called ElfQuest. Join us as we take you on our own quest in Marvel's classic epic comics run, chronicling the original quest of the Wolf Riders. Come with us back in time. Join us on this quest. Welcome to Quester Days. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Chris and Chris here with, uh, well, something new. Uh, this is a... Uh, don't know if we want to call this a pilot or maybe a proof of concept, but uh, a lot of what we do on this channel um, is based on things that are back in the past. So that was uh, one of the uh, one of the phrases that would introduce the cosmic treadmills that we're going back to the past. Well, today we're going to flip that a bit. We're going to go into the future here. We're going to take a look into the future of this channel with the program that will eventually replace Moratory Mondays here at the channel because Strike Force Moratory is a finite series and uh, we're rapidly approaching the end of it. And uh, folks who enjoy that show, who, uh, who might have missed it over the past couple months, it's going to be back. It'll probably be back uh, if if both of us uh, survive the weekend, neither of us get hit by lightning. Um, <laughs> the Moratory Mondays should be back this very Monday. But... Now, looking into the future, after Moratory Mondays is uh, ceases to be a thing, we are going to cover the Marvel epic run of ElfQuest. It's a program we're going to be calling Quester Days, colon, an epic ElfQuest podcast. And again, this is Chris and Chris, and I uh, figure I'll send it over to my partner here so he can give, uh, give you all a little bit of his personal history with this franchise we both hold so dear. Absolutely. Quest of days. Got nothing for me. Yes. And that's that's my attempt at a theme song where this is the pilot. I get to do that. OK, so yes. that's what you yes. get. This is <laughs> launching. So this is one of those episodes that you can look back and uh, you can say, man, that show really transformed. They were idiots at the first episode. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, ElfQuest is uh, and I know I speak for Chris as well, was one of those little niche things that uh, that I caught on early as a kid. Uh, completely out of nowhere, to be quite honest with you. It's one of those creator-owned comics, which was always cool, because when you think of comics back in your childhood, you always thought of the big two. You know what I mean? It was always Marvel. It was always DC. So when I discovered ElfQuest, it was by fluke. I used to love visiting our public library, and I know that could probably sound a little bit corny to <laughs> listeners these days who probably wouldn't <laughs> know where to find one, let, let sure. alone if one actually existed in their area. But yeah, it was a thing I did because I used to love reading Hardy Boy books, Nancy Drew, you know, anything with a, you know, an investigator. I was all over it. Choose your own adventure. I remember one day it was after school and I used to hang out at the library and by myself, by the way, there were no computers. There were no Internet. There was a microfiche over in the corner. And then there was a small section of, you know, uh, juvenile to teen books. And as I was perusing my regular uh, regular books, my uh, Alfred Hitchcock Three Investigators and all the different things, Bobsy Twins and different books, down in the bottom were two larger graphic novel-like things. Now, I didn't know what a graphic novel was, nor was the, the phrase coined at that point. But uh, at the bottom, there were two large books, so I picked them up, and these were ElfQuest, book one and two. 
Now, these were pretty, pretty slick looking books. I mean, these, uh, you know, bombastic covers, beautiful, lush color. I had no idea what this was. And little did I know that it was a comic inside. So then I cracked (laughs) the pages and I was like, wait a second. It was beautiful. It was different. It was almost shocking, to be quite honest with you. And not only that, despite ElfQuest launching in black and white, these things were in full color, believe it or not. So when I uh, so I took those immediately to the um, to the checkout stand at my library and I brought those things home and man let me tell you something if I could find a way to accidentally lose a library book I probably would have on this time but uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> late fees were damn expensive back in Clarenville Newfoundland so uh, sadly after three weeks I did bring these things back but what a journey those things took me on now that only brought me halfway through the original quest so mm-hmm. I knew there was a lot more but. When I brought them back, I knew I'd never see them again because obviously someone had the same idea <laughs> I did, and they uh, they brought them home and they kept them home. So I never ever saw those things again uh, until dun, 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 Marvel came back with Elf Quest um, through the Epic line, and boy was I happy to see that! Holy cow! <laughs> no, uh, I actually discovered Elf Quest uh, also by accident, and um, and honestly, if not for Elf Quest. It's a very good possibility you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. So they are to thank or to blame for me doing what I do right now. Um, I uh, My family moved to Long Island in uh, 1988. Um, I was in fourth grade. And, um, you know, I was a new kid. I didn't know anybody there. Uh, and uh, when I started making friends, uh, I met a, a buddy who was into uh, Dungeons and Dragons. There you go. Now, yeah, and I personally can't sit still long enough to play Dungeons and Dragons. I've tried. <laughs> and it, I tried ages ago. I, I, I haven't tried since being a, a, a you know, a grown up. But uh, as a kid, I just couldn't sit still uh, long enough to do it. If uh, if I had the choice between, you know, playing some Super Mario and playing Dungeons and Dragons, I, I was playing Mario. So, um, <laughs> well, yeah, well, guess what? And I told this over on Moratory Mondays as well. Much the same as you. Uh, you know, I only had one encounter with or two encounters with Dungeons and Dragons in high school. Mm-hmm. But then during university in my last year, I decided to, you know, check out this whole university place. And it was my last year. And on the wall, there was an ad for a, for a D&D society. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I uh, had my Ziploc bag and my dice and my little pre-made dungeons all folded up in there. And I went to the place where they had, uh, you know, the D&D society and the university. And I looked in the room, and uh, these people were uh, not for me, Chris. And uh, that was the uh, <laughs> that was the end. That was that was the end of your career as a yes, professional D and D. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> anyway, continue on. Sorry about that. Oh no, no, it's all good. Um, now I wanted to be involved because these these folks were my friends, and I didn't have very many here, uh, being a new kid and being you know socially awkward as a, as I continue to be as an adult. Um, so I wanted to be part of this. Uh, so what I would do is I would, uh, I would draw the characters. So, you know, they, uh, my friends would roll for their characters. They'd create, you know, their whole stat sheet and, uh, they would tell me what they'd want drawn and I would draw them. So it just became what I would do. You know, I'd get, I'd get a couple of uh, sheets like on a Monday, I'd bring them home. I'd, I'd draw out the characters. I'd bring them back on a Tuesday and I don't know if they ever got used, but you know, it was fun to do, and I, I felt was like I was fun. part of it. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that was exactly. half the fun. The creation part and drawing your character was always probably the best part, depending on your your dungeon master, of course. Sure, sure. So uh, one weekend, I went to my buddy's house, and uh, he showed me these uh, these character sheets that he drew, and I was not I, I was knocked for a loop. These characters looked awesome. Um, and I, and I'm thinking like, why did you have me draw them if you could draw these so much better? And, uh, and he said that, uh, he said, he's like, oh, I didn't do these freehand. I traced these, uh, I, I found a book with these outlines. So I traced the outline and I just filled them in and I was like, oh, let me see this book. And it was, uh, the ElfQuest Gatherum, uh, I think it was volume two. Now the ElfQuest Gatherum is kind of, it's not a, it's not a graphic novel, uh, per- trade collection it's like a collection of elf quest ephemera and like different bits from the comics journal different uh, articles just all this interesting stuff that's just pulled together uh for you know a bookshelf edition and uh so i was like oh okay he, and he actually he got it from the public library uh which uh, you know as you mentioned here was uh it was scarce uh for uh for you know uh, se- uh sequential art but you had a little bit. You had like Garfield, you had uh, Peanuts. <laughs> you might, if you're lucky, you have Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics. And then you had ElfQuest. But uh, I asked if I could borrow this book. So I borrowed it and I, I drew up a bunch of characters. And uh, as I'm, you know, in my room finishing up drawing a character, I'm like, hey, maybe I'll flip through this thing and uh, and see what's what. And so I actually, you know, started reading this Gatherum as though it were a book to be read, which it was. Um, and I just fell in love with the concept and the idea. And uh, I went back to my buddy's house and I'm like, hey, have you, have you read this stuff? And he then he pulls out the first three volumes oh. that uh, that he owned. His parents oh bought them for him. They, these what, were the Father what? Tree Press. Oh. Hmm? Yeah, so oh nice. God, I was so jealous. Uh, he, and, he, and he gave me the first one. He's like, yeah, check this out. And uh, I brought it home. I, I must have read that thing five, six, seven times uh, in, in, just a, in just like a week because it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen up to that point. Oh, they were and, uh, they were amazing. I, I remember oh, it was no long joke. after the epic line had um, had been concluded. And I went to yeah. a comic book store and they had those there. And I was I just sat there stunned. I mean, those things were beautiful. Gorgeous oh books, God. oversized. The art was phenomenal. The coloring was lush. It included all the extras at the back. So, as we get into the Marvel run here, we're going to talk about the additional pages they needed to uh, in order to facilitate, um, you know, uh, uh, credits pages and uh, bridging because the original. Well, we'll get into the original work here because it wasn't separated into the same amount of issues as the ones we're going to cover here. So they had to do a little bit of juggling and a little bit of filling to make it flow, uh, you know, serially. Yeah. But uh, I, I remember just being knocked over by how awesome this was, and uh, and then I find out, you know, there's this epic run in the back of the book. They have these covers for the epic issues, and I'm like, well, what are these? And uh, then my friend, because he couldn't find the fourth volume of uh, the complete off quest. <laughs> it's always the way. Yeah, Same with me. So he I had... only had two volumes in my library. Like it, it's almost like you're meant to go on a quest to find these. Like <laughs> it's true. It's true. And now he had the first three, and then he had the the rest of it in single issues. So he had wow. volume four as single issues from the Marvel Epic Run. So I asked what the epic run was. He showed, he produced these issues and he's like, oh, they're these. I'm like, this is a Marvel book. Wow. (laughs) You know, I had no idea. 
Um, <laughs> and and uh, I wanted them. And I figured at first I'm like, I, I asked my, my parents if they could buy me, you know, volume one. And uh, they're like, well, how much is it? And I'm like, oh, it's probably like $10, you know. Oh. I flip it over. It's 20 <laughs> which is Which was first... huge cash back then. No doubt. It was my first, uh, my, like, my introduction to the to the fact that, you know, trade paperbacks and graphic novels were, they weren't like a paperback you'd get, you know, in your school book order that was, you know, five or six bucks. This was, this was serious business. And uh, I was like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I ain't going to get 20 bucks for this. <laughs> so my only way around it was trying to find these single issues. And uh, as the epic run had already concluded... I had to actually find a place that sold comic books, um, you know, as a as a specialty. And uh, this was the first time I'd ever gone to a comic book store. I was looking for ElfQuest back issues, and uh, it was like one of those things where, you know, like the, the the doors swing open and you hear the the the, the harps and choirs and and then. <laughs> And then you make it to the front desk and you say, I'm looking for ElfQuest. And he's like, well, if we have it, it's over there. It's like, ah, and like they like the record yeah. on the harp skips, you know, <laughs> or like one of the strings on the harp snaps. It's and, like uh, you're asking for like a disease or something. Yeah, basically, what are you doing? Basically. Man. So he sent me over and uh, was, this is my first time ever looking at a back issue bin ever. I didn't know that back issue bins were a thing that existed and, uh, and just seeing that, Oh, like wow this is these are old comics this is you know uh, gener- generations of comics here ready for me to look through and i go to the ease and the first one i see is electra assassin um <laughs> number number something i don't remember which number it was but it had a ten dollar price tag on it for one issue and i was like oh no uh then i get to elf quest and i find uh, i think it was elf quest issue 10 from the marvel run and it was like a dollar 50 i'm like oh okay i could do that yeah there <laughs> but, you uh, go but uh that's how i started uh you know looking in in back issue bins and that's how i started uh frequenting a comic book shop i would I, go I, there every week i like how they uh priced it at a dollar 50 which is exactly twice the price of, of the 75 percent <laughs> yep, yep. They, have to, they have to get their money they, you know that the bag isn't free you know that, no. that my law bag <laughs> they gotta get their money back on that even though it looks like it was like dipped in milk for like a you know, half hour uh, all cloudy these things, and <laughs> these things are not easy to find in a full run i don't know in comic books where i live right now like or comic stores where i live right now like ElfQuest is not a not a common thing that you see in those bins, you know what I mean? In regards to like sure. the entire run of Epic, you'll get a scattered issue here and there. You'll get it, but, yeah, uh, a few. Yeah, yeah, and it's typically the same. You know, it's usually out of the first ten. You know what yeah. I mean? Tip. You know what I mean? But uh, it seems like the later issues, they really got scarcer and scarcer, and and just basically they vanished off the face of the earth after this run. So. <laughs> It's true. I mean, when it's true. You think about creator-owned comics. It's always the same as well because I mean, you know, print runs were not huge. You talk about like yeah. Eastman and Leard's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, those first four issues are coveted, man. Like they're hard to find. They're jacked oh, up yeah. money. Then you Even get like people the who, third or fourth yeah. prints of them are are hard to oh, get God, to get yes. a hold of. Yeah, I I will tell you, sir, that I have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one through three original first editions, and guess where I got those? Hmm. New England Comics, baby, right through the mail. No joke. Oh yes, I didn't. I may have paid six or seven dollars a piece, 
It was just before wow. the uh, oh yeah, I had no idea what I had, and then all of a sudden years later they had the uh, the cartoon show, and I'm like, wait a second, I think I have a comic <laughs> book of this, and then boom, there it was. But you know, creator own stuff. Uh, back to creator own stuff. I mean, you got yeah. you had two or three things going on. You either had brand new properties such as Turtles or Cerebus with Dave Sim, or you had mm-hmm. you know other artists who you know were on the downswing, like when when Jack Kirby did Captain Victory over at PC or Pacific, yeah. Or when, uh, or when Ditko did, um, you know, did his own thing when he did Mr. A oh, and yeah. different things like did that. Mr. You know what A. I mean? He had the mini comics that he'd put out. He had the, yeah. the Ditko ons. Yeah. Yeah, he would literally, you know, draw pages, staple them together, and sell them. You know what I mean? Over That's a zero. Yep. Yeah, he literally <laughs> would do that. And, of course, then you have Wendy and Richard Peeney's ElfQuest, which is probably the crown jewel of when you talk about, you know, stuff that I enjoy anyway of, of creator-owned books, so. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, you know, like I said earlier, I, I cre- uh, they can be credited and blamed for the the room I'm sitting in that is full of fire hazard right now. You know, it's a <laughs> it, it's it's what got me into the comic shop. It's uh it was a gateway to things like the X Men uh, that uh you know I've 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 only let go of you know sparingly throughout the past thirty odd years. You know, um it, it's uh, I I. I owe a lot to this to this property to this book to these creators. It's uh, and and we're going to be talking a lot more about the property and and of course the uh, the creators as well as we go through this because uh, they loom large um, you know alongside the story they will they loom large in our fandom and uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to doing this. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh me but, too. Uh, so I I recently had the uh, the ElfQuest omnibus from uh, Dark Horse from the original yes. Quest. So, you know, mm-hmm. I did get that for one Christmas. Of course, it's all in beautiful black and white. It's larger size. Gorgeous you know, book. Yeah, beautiful, book. beautiful volumes. I mean, those things are they're, – they're bigger than phone books. I mean, these things are mm-hmm. huge. They'd kill you if they fell in your head. But, uh, <laughs> they might. But, but it's wonderful to look back at the epic run because what Marvel did, they actually added content to make, make yep. these, you know, single issues, which is pretty mm-hmm. awesome. So, you know, one of the things you're going to expect from this podcast is that we're going to contrast the original with the, the Marvel added content. We're going to tell you what they put in these each issue. You know what I mean? If we can find interviews with the peenies over the years, we'll probably talk about some of those things and, of course, review the epic line. So, I mean, we're going to have some fun here, and I cannot wait to get into the origins of some ElfQuest here, baby. Certainly, certainly. Now, this is, uh, you know, this is most largely cribbed from the uh, Cosmic Treadmill episode uh, Reggie and I did on this uh, several years ago. Uh, we did an episode on ElfQuest uh, very early in the run, and uh, I, we took a little bit of that just to uh, kind of give a foundation uh, on, uh, you know, the origins of this property here. Now, the first ElfQuest story would appear in the underground comic Fantasy Quarterly. Now, this was published by the Independent Publishers Syndicate, or IPS. Now, Wendy recalls being unhappy with the quality of this issue because uh, the cover was not – yeah, the cover was not glossy. Uh, It was supposed to be. Uh, It was flimsy. It was barely thicker than the newsprint inside. So, uh, I I mean, I think think Wendy's art would look great even on a cocktail napkin, but I totally totally understand uh, being – Especially that early in the career, uh, I, I definitely understand being, you know, a little bit disheartened or disenfranchised with uh, what your expectations are and uh, what reality actually well, is. It's so radically different from everything else that was on the shelf, Chris. I mean, you 100%. take a look at Wendy Peeney's work now. When you when you talk about, you know, your favorite artist, rarely does her name come up. But I, man, I'm telling you, one look at these pages and you know you're looking at something unique. 
It is just mm-hmm. visually stunning. Her use of shadow and, and just, you know, these things were originally black and white. So, yeah. so you know, you're doing a lot of tricks that, you know, folks like Frank Miller and all that stuff, you know, uh, popularized back in the, you know, either the, the 80s or with the Sin Cities and all that type of thing. She was doing this back in the 70s, and it was no beautiful. And, uh, mm-hmm. man, she should always be in the conversation of some of my uh, – one of my favorite artists because this girl can can rock the pencil, man. No doubt about it. Now, in uh, 1978, uh, Wendy and Richard would borrow some dough, and they co-founded Warp Graphics. And uh, Warp is – what is this, an acronym? Is that what we call it? <laughs> I, I, I a, assume so. It's a big W, little a, big R, big P. So Wendy and Richard Peeney, Warp. Uh. Now, uh, the first issue they published was ElfQuest number two, which continued the story that ran in Fantasy Quarterly. Now, as we mentioned, ElfQuest was published in black and white with a magazine-sized format rather than using classic comics dimensions, the regular trim here. So you won't find these in regular back-issue bins. You'll find them, like, in the magazine back-issue bins if you're lucky enough to have one of those in your shop or in the record store or the used bookstore you hang out at. Now, each issue would have a full-color cover and a back-cover character portrait as well. Uh, now, the first issue was eventually printed by Warp, which collected the Fantasy Quarterly story. So we have the, uh, you know, the linear story here. Um, now, at this point, Richard, who was working at IBM, he left his job and he would become the full-time publisher, editor, marketer, and the co-creator of ElfQuest. Think about that Together, for a second. So mm-hmm. he left a job at IBM back in to, the back in the to, late 70s to self-publish. Yeah. A black and white comic, not for the big two. Think yep. about that for a second, people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, that's not f- belief in your your wife's work. I don't know what is. No doubt, because you got to figure. I mean, we're getting into the era of the the home computer in the late seventies. So that's that's you know that's like a Rubicon for the tech uh, <laughs> the tech industry right there. It's crazy. Um, now the concept of ElfQuest was shopped around and turned down by both Marvel and DC. Ouch. Yeah, two companies that would both actually publish it later on in its life. In, in its life. Uh, <laughs> Marvel right here with the epic run and DC around the turn of the century, around the 25th anniversary, I believe, or yes. the 30th anniversary, one of those. Uh, but yeah, DC got the property. Marvel got the property. Dark Horse got the property. It's uh, It's been around. Um, and, uh, you know, before we go any further here, uh, we do want to say that everything ElfQuest before... Uh, before like the final quest uh, story that just concluded within the past couple of years, it's available for free at elfquest.com. So <laughs> who does that? You talk about right. beating beating the pirates to the punch. No doubt. So there's no reason not to check this stuff out. It's there for free. It's it's gorgeous work. Um, no matter if it's digital or in print, uh, definitely worth your time to at least give it a look. So if you're listening and you've never read or or beholden ElfQuest before, you can do it. And you can do it for free. And you can do it legally for free. So uh, we they, definitely they encourage. Um, yeah, they those things look beautiful on an iPad. Now, I'm not one. I'm not I here bet. to promote promote digital but man when i just took a look at them because i knew that they were on the website for free and i wanted Mm -hmm. to read a few things outside of the original quest and man these things are beautiful digitally they're they're super enhanced you know they got a great deal going on obviously the person maybe maybe richard's work at ibm helped them because the the format that (laughs) could be used to yeah to uh to be able to view these comics is amazing so i mean it's definitely worth checking out i can't i can't recommend it enough 
Mm-hmm. And again, it's free and legal. Yes. So my favorite. We can price. actually say do it. Yes. Oh yes, <laughs> it's the best price that there is. But uh, without any further ado, let's get into the first issue of the epic run of ElfQuest here. This is ElfQuest number one, at a cover date of August 1985. The story is called Fire and Flight, written by Wendy and Richard Peeney, with art by Wendy Peeney. Edits uh, Archie Goodwin. Archie Goodwin was the editor at Epic. I don't know that he actually made any. I don't think he made any actual edits. <laughs> um, associate editor is Joe Duffy. I don't think she did much either. Uh, the consulting editor is Jim Shooter, and I don't think he did much either. Uh, since Jim Shooter a, says, uh, yes, put this on the shelves right now. That's about people. it. And yeah, he probably fired a, the idiot who said no originally. <laughs> right. Now, this one came with a cover price of 75 cents U.S. and $1 Canadian. Uh, Mike's Amazing World gives this an on-sale date of uh, May 13th, 1985. And uh, this is both direct market and newsstand. And uh, this, again, is from Marvel's Epic Comics here. Uh, you want to you tell them about the uh, rather striking cover we have for this oh, issue? Man, if you didn't buy this on the rack, if that didn't jump out at you, you had vision problems. <laughs> yep. Because for this cover, for me, it was just incredible. I mean, it jumps out at you. you front and center, you've got Cutter, obviously the leader of the Wolf Rider clan. And, you know, all the rest of the, uh, all the, rest of the elves are fleeing a burning forest. You know, they're fleeing the Holt. And you'll find out a little bit later why they're fleeing it. You know, it's very colorful. It's I would call it epic, which is yeah. which is exactly what the, what I would claim to this cover would be. And you know, I was familiar with ElfQuest as a kid, but I had no idea number one that these were reprints of the original, which was great because you know those gra- two graphic novels I had read were lost in time for me. So when I cracked these things and recalled that hey, this is the <laughs> original book that I read in a new format, I couldn't be more happier. So. Beautiful cover, beautiful start to the epic run, and uh, man, if it didn't grab you, I don't know. I can't help you as a comic fan. And there's just so much going on here. Uh, like even if you look at the bottom of the of the image here, you have Picknose the troll. Yep. You know he it, it shows the underground. It, it's it like the cover tells a story, and uh, and definitely <gasps> it's Imagine. so eye grabbing. Yeah, right. <laughs> is is this a, a variant? With is this just a variant? <laughs> is the cover completely white? Well, you know, they're not all dressed like babies, so they're they're maybe it's not a maybe it's not a variant. Uh, is this one of ten covers, Chris? You know, <laughs> one of seventy three, and you need to buy uh, ten thousand <laughs> copies of uh, Squirrel Girl number twenty four to get that. <laughs> um, but uh, no, this is a wonderful cover. Um, and uh, it's the first time I saw this cover was in black and white because it was in the back of that complete ElfQuest volume one. Uh, from nice. the, the Father Tree Press one, and uh, I mean it's it's gorgeous. I actually sent you uh, I sent you that in our in our DMs the uh, black and white version with the without the logo. It's uh, you know that that's it's a really really nice image, but uh, definitely love it. Uh, we're gonna crack this thing open and take a look at what's inside here. Now now the issue opens with a tribe of humans preparing to make a sacrifice to their god Gotara. Now the tribe's spirit man he chants uh, to the beating of drums. In the background, we see an altar adorned with skulls, bones, and decorative sto- decorated stone. Uh, we don't yet see who might be this night's sacrifice, though, uh, you know, if we examine the cover, we might have a little bit of an idea, uh, at <laughs> least what shape this sacrifice might take. Now, first, we jump into a little bit of a backstory to this new world that we're currently in. 
We see, you know, millennia ago here, humans are shown as nothing more than primitive and barbaric cave people who one day found themselves being visited. You see in the skies, a crack of thunder splits the clouds and a glowing palace descends to the ground below. <laughs> I always laugh at this origin. So, I mean, you know, to to appreciate how the elves came to be on this world, they literally come from a castle in the sky, <laughs> a crack mm-hmm. of thunder and a very lush palace. I mean, this thing yeah. is beautiful, just comes out of the sky and just lands neatly on Earth or this Earth-like place. We don't really know where we are at this point. But mm. it seems that, you know, the elves, are they wealthy? You know, are they not suited for the survival in the woods against these humans? I mean, humans, you take a look at how they're presented here. I mean, they are super primitive. They're almost savage-like, to be quite honest with you. But uh, Oh, totally. These elves, they live in a palace. They're civilized. You know, obviously they have riches and lots of luxury. And, you know, when they land here, they think everything's going to be fine. And, you know, they're in a they're in a great place. But boy, were they wrong. Nope, they meet the savages, <laughs> known as the humans, and are chasing the woods. So, you know, it's just an odd origin story when you think of, you know, how elves were perceived in, like, especially Dungeons & Dragons when I grew up. I mean... I had the old Raddy's, you know, second edition <laughs> D&D mm-hmm. handbook that, you know, I got at a bookstore that was basically falling apart, probably missing half the pages. I didn't know at the time. Sure. But, you know, <laughs> elves were presented as, you know, almost magical, you know, nice looking, nice creatures. You know what I mean? They they weren't aggressors, sure. but, you know, they had a sword. They had a bow and arrow. You know, they, they were quaint little people but uh, they're presented quite differently here and i, I kind of like the way the peenies present them you know they're they came from a palace in the sky and all of a sudden they're here so mm. but and i like they, it and they're, cool, they're cool. and they're adorned in like these like regal these, these regal clothes uh yes. where the savages are i mean some of them are nude uh, some of them are wearing like skins <laughs> so it's a uh, it's definitely uh, there is a dichotomy here between the uh, the you know the far-flung you know, elves from the sky and uh, these land-dwelling savages. It's uh, it's very cool. It is. Now, these cu- these humans are curious by this, as you imagine they would be, and they uh, decide to approach this glowing palace to investigate. Now, the palace doors swing open, and a family of elves emerge. They are flanked by a pair of young troll children and some tiny winged critters that we'll meet later on down the line. Now... The elven patriarch, or we assume it's the elven patriarch here, he extends a friendly hand toward the human and gets his skull cracked in for his troubles. Oh, yikes. Yes. Now, the primitive humans overtake the palace, beating down any elf they can catch, though many of the elves are able to flee into the forest. And uh, the scene shifts to a pair of fearful elves peeking through the brush which is uh, immediately followed by a similar panel, which takes us into the current day. Now, think about it. How much time do you think has really passed here? Because, you know, it appears the elves have learned to hunt by this time, and they're able to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So clearly they've established a routine. They've, you know, developed a tribe mentality because, you know, they're in the woods. They're not in their royal palace and, you know, have all the luxuries of that. They literally got displaced into the woods by these cavemen. You know what I mean? Now, Mm -hmm. Cutter seems like an unusual choice for a leader because think about where they came from i mean do you think that this would be the guy who would be the leader of a rich lush palace here i don't think so Mm -hmm. to me to me 
the story of, you know, how, you know, the hierarchy was developed would be interesting. You know, did Cutter work his way to becoming the chief? Did they accept him outright? Or, you know, did his survival skills outweigh that of others? You know, something that I'd really like to know how this happened. But uh, we don't well, really get to see it the entirely flush out. No. Yeah, not yet, because we, we, we will. Yeah. yeah, we're going to get into the whole Blood of Ten Chiefs thing as we yes. uh, as we work our way through. So there there is a a method to it, which is is very interesting, and uh, it does take it does take into account, you know, um, how how do you accept you know a a chief who you may not agree with their methods or agree with the way they became chief. So it's going to be there's got there there are politics at play. There will be. It'll be a lot of Definitely. fun to discuss. Now, we shift from that scene of these uh, regal elves hiding in the brush to two very familiar elves to folks who know ElfQuest in a similar brush, looking at this uh, near sacrifice. Now, on the left, or our left, is uh, Cutter, the chief of the Wolf Riders, and on the right, or our right, is his lifelong friend, Skywise. Now, uh, before we get any further here, did you have any favorites when you start, when you discovered ElfQuest? Oh, listen, I was all about the central characters, man. Cutter, of course, is my absolute I was a, favorite. I was, I was a Skywise guy, so maybe oh, that really? works for both of us. Oh, yeah. Really? That's cool. No, I, I, yeah. I love to, uh, to draw Cutter. He was one of those elves that, you know, every time I pick up a pencil and want to draw ElfQuest, it was always Cutter and that wild hair and just the, you know, the dagger. It was so cool, man. I love the imagery of all these characters, so. I remember in seventh seventh or eighth grade, I was in a technology class, or it was wood shop, but they called it technology to make it sound more important, I think. And uh, <laughs> we were learning how to use like one of those dial saws, you know, like where you'd have oh, like yeah. a block of wood and you'd push it and it would just like do its thing. And I remember I drew New Moon, the the cutter's sword, yeah, on this little block of wood, and I was trying to cut it out, and uh, I could I could never make it work. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like it looked like like a shank made out of like rye bread when I was done with it. But uh, but I tried. Damn it. I tried. Now, <laughs> back to the story here. Uh, we have Cutter and Skywise and uh, they, backed by their tribe, the Wolf Riders, are on a rescue mission. And they're looking on as these humans prepare their sacrifice to their god, Gotara. Now, the spirit man who was dancing and chanting, he now demands that the demon, in quotes, be killed and we get a better look at the scene. Now we can see that the human sacrifice is going to be another member of the Wolf Riders, a fellow by the name of Red Lance. Ooh. Now, Red Lance, he basically dares the spirit man to just, you know, get it over with. You know, if you're going to do it, just do it. However, at this point, Cutter gives word to the tribe and they pounce. Now, the spirit man calls out to another human who's called Tabak or Tabak. Uh, he tells him to kill Red Lance while there's still time. And then Cutter stabs him in the throat before he can. Now, think about this. This is actually Cutter, their leader, first human kill. So, mm. you know, the fact that he knows to cut Tabak's throat, you, clearly they've been scouting these humans out for a good while. You know what I mean? They know what makes yep. them tick. Are they similar to them? You know what I mean? Cutter clearly has his game. But what I like about this is that, you know, Wendy Peeney, when they when her and Richard write this book, they always have a conscience. So, you know, yep. Cutter is just not okay with going in freeing his friend and, you know, killing a human. You know, he he's troubled about it. You know, he has it, issues. It weighs, he's a crisis. Yeah. Of, yeah, it weighs on him. He actually killed somebody. So, you know, it's it's cool to know out of the gate that Cutter's the leader because he'll go to any lengths, including murder, to, mm -hmm. you know, to protect his wolf riders. And he frees Red Lance here, of course. It's awesome. 
Yeah, and, and we're going to find out in just a little bit that uh, that uh, actions have consequences. Uh, that's, oh yes, uh, that's oh, another boy. big theme here. Um, so we got uh, we got our man stabbed in the throat, and then Cutter tosses Red Lance on the back of his wolf, calls off his tribe, and prote- proceeds to threaten the Spirit Man, uh, which may not be the wisest idea the young chief has today. <laughs> now, <laughs> away from the humans, Cutter sends Skywise ahead to inform Red Lance's life mate, Nightfall, that they're going to be bringing him back alive. Turns out she didn't really even know he was gone. Um, in fairness, Red Lance is kind of forgettable. Um, Definitely. <laughs> not one of my favorites. No. Uh, now, his power, I think he he can make uh, he can make like plants grow. So he's kind <laughs> of a... Uh, and I, I, he's like a, a Beth a Beth Neon from a Strike Force Moratoria here. Um, <laughs> now we rejoin the humans and they are mourning the loss of Tabak. The Spirit Man promises that the Wolf Demons will in fact pay for what they've done. I mean, humans here you can really get to see like uh, you know we're dealing with a basic sword and sorcery type story here anyway. Maybe you know maybe a bit inspired by Dungeons and Dragons, maybe some Lord of the Rings tossed in here. But one thing is that that's interesting is that you have the Spirit Man. Obviously, he has this religious cult like hold over humans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So even as back as seven, you know, as far as seventy eight, you know, you have this. This whole religious cult thing that you'll see, you know, grow within the 80s, televangelism and all this type of thing coming to light. And, uh, you know, you get to see a little bit of that through through Waco and the different things with David Koresh and all that stuff. And, you know, you get to see it really in full front and center here. And it's interesting to see that it's demonology is, you Mm -hmm. know, is their explanation that, you know, elves exist in the world. Because you think about how Dungeons and Dragons were received back when they first came out. I mean, this thing was outlawed in schools. I mean, it was demon talk. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't play D&D. My God, your child must have been worshiping Satan. You know what I mean? Sure. So I'm Absolutely. glad that they sort of play into that here where demons think that, uh, or humans think that elves are something demonic and, you know, that mm-hmm. they must control. So pretty, pretty interesting point of view from the, from the humans here. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a lot. Uh, it's a lot deeper than uh, than it might appear on the face of it. It's uh, and and that's something that we're going to be playing with this entire run here. Uh, humans are are going to be you know coming and going throughout this series, and uh, it won't always be the same result. So it's going to be very hey. cool to to discuss. Now uh, we jump back to the halt, and Cutter is reading Red Redlands the Riot Act for hunting alone. Uh, Nightshade enters the scene to facilitate Cutter delivering some expositional dialogue as to why it is that elves and humans don't get along. Now, she wishes that they could live somewhere where there are no humans, which uh, sounds like paradise, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> how, how timely. Right? Uh, later that night, Cutter and Skywise are looking at the stars. Cutter is feeling pretty down because, as mentioned, this was the first time he'd ever had to kill a human. He's not taking it all that well, and he can't seem to shake his worry. Now, Skywise attempts to assuage his pal's fears, claiming that the humans are too scared to come anywhere near the halt. Well, not so fast, Akimo Sabi, because at this very ma- at this very moment, the wolves start howling like mad. Something is about to be very, very wrong. Cutter's wolf, Night Runner, approaches, and he speaks to him telepathically. And uh, the elves can uh, they can. They can be. They can speak telepathically. They call it sending. I I totally forgot that the wolves Me could too. do it too. Me too. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that happens very often. I can't remember it happening ter- terribly often, but uh, I could be mistaken. Um, 
At this point, with Cutter knowing what's happening, uh, he uses his own telepathic sending power to pass the warning on to some of the men of the tribe. It's pretty cool that they gave telepathy as, you know, especially as Cutter's gift here. Because you think, like I said, when you talk about D&D's portrayal of elves, you know, they're like diminutive warriors. They use bows, arrows, primary weapons. Sometimes they dabbled into magical. But, you know, I think this is really, really cool that they that they use telepathy. I, I really, really mm-hmm. thought this was cool, and you get to see it in full gear as these issues go on. You know, different ways that they utilize it is awesome. But, uh, you know, we, we also get to see in D&D, they broke them into subclasses, and we sort of get to see if, a little bit of that as we go on. And, uh, you know, we get to see who the upper brass are of the ever elves, you know what I mean? D&D presented them like high elves and winged elves and, you know, half elves yep. and all these different things. But the Peenies presentation of them don't seem to contradict, but, you know, maybe more inspired probably by the D&D role-playing era than we might have thought originally. So, you know, the, clear it's clear that Wendy and Peeny played a bit of D&D back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very likely. Um, now, the descending power, I, I always loved the way it was shown as like that that sort of like that kind of like stylized diamond. Yes. Which uh, which indicated that there was ascending going on. Um, I, I thought that was so cool. And I think I probably drew that diamond like millions of times uh, on, on my notebooks and stuff. But uh, now it's here because we have Cutter sending the message to uh, to the some of the men of the tribe. We meet some wolf rider stalwarts. We meet One-Eye, his son Scouter, Strongbow, Tree Stump, and Pike. Uh, Cutter does not summon the recently rescued Red Lance, though in fairness he probably <laughs> forgot he was even there in the first place. Uh, <laughs> the wolf riders all mount up and head out to confront the human interlopers. Turns out that Night Runner wasn't messing around here. They uh, they brought plenty of fire with them. Night Runner did warn that there was fire. Uh, Cutter attempts to reason with the Spirit Man, rightfully stating that if they burn down the woods, everybody will suffer and starve, not just the elves. Ooh, look well, at that! Thinking yeah. ahead there. Absolutely. Well, the old Spirit Man don't care even a little bit, and <laughs> he tosses Man. his his lit torch into the brush. Uh, the nearby Strongbow manages to fire a bolt into his throat for good measure. So uh, uh, I, I have a feeling he'll probably feel a lot less guilty about it than Cutter did. So, what, The graphic nature of some of these kills are, uh, are one of the things that was striking first when you read ElfQuest right away, especially as a kid visiting a mm-hmm. library. You don't think you don't think someone's going to get stabbed in the throat or bashed over the head or, you know, there's actual people oh. dying in these things. You know what I mean? And no when you think, of, and you think about ElfQuest, one of the things that I loved about it was that you did see death, you did see this, and you did see sex, which was... Uh, I was going to say, we're going we're gonna to get yes. in... There's going to be... Much later on, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but the thing of it is here, it's, uh, this, is, uh, this is violent. This is uh, like a... It shows violence, but it doesn't... It's not explicit. It's no, not no, gore. No, no. Um, I think that's kind of the... Uh, like the beautiful ugliness of it, you know, we're seeing we're seeing actual moves that you can't step back. You know, these are like cutter cut a dude's throat. Strongbow just launched a bolt into a dude's neck. These are things that you can't walk back, but they're not done. They're not done for shock. They're not done for. They're not done gratuitously. They're, no. they're done. Every every beat here has a purpose and like almost like a, a visceral feel to it. You, you get to you get to see just what the stakes are. 
um, I'm taking the scenic route to, <laughs> to say that, but you see that there are actual stakes here. Um, now we have, a uh, we have, a uh, you know, the entire forest, the, the spirit man through the, through the torch in quick as a hiccup, the whole place is engulfed in flames. Uh, the wolf riders fall back to gather their kin from the halt. And after careful consideration, Cutter decides that their best bet for survival would probably be to venture into the caverns of the trolls. Yes, the caverns. Who doesn't play D&D without visiting the caverns? I love it. And you get you get the trolls here. I mean, the depiction of the trolls is interesting because, uh, you know, when, and we'll get to see this entirely in the next issue, of course. But they almost act subordinate and not, like not combative to the elves. You know what I mean? They're almost fearful. Fearful. They live in yep. caves, you know, to shield themselves from the outside and outsiders, you know. But they're not trustworthy at all. They'll stab you in the back when you know the second you turn around. <laughs> they're devious, but you know, at first glance, they're just cowards. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like the way you saw trolls back in the day. I mean, when you think of a troll, like something, a troll under the bridge or a troll, and you know, mm-hmm. they would attack like you. They were giant vicious. blocking a path. Yeah. Yes, but these these guys are just oh no elves. It's almost like an inconvenience. <laughs> the cartoon oh, crap. characters. Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> Which you know we talked about the uh, the different variations on the elves here that we're going to meet throughout our journey. There are also different groups of trolls, and some are bloodthirsty, some are brutal, and some are, you know, court jesters. Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, we're about to meet one of those <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> the elves go to the cavern, right? And Cutter pounds away on the door to the troll tunnel. Like you mentioned here, the the, the trolls are like subordinate to the to the elves here. Like Cutter has no qualms about just pounding on their door, being like, "Hey, let us in." Um, now the door opens, but uh, not quick enough for the wolf riders, and, they, and so they push their way in, uh, much to the poor troll's disdain. And it's here that we're introduced to Picknose, uh. one of the one of the greatest trolls in in all of troll history. Um, he asks about what all the hubbub's about, and so Cutter explains the situation. Think about the name. I mean, you, she chose Picknose <laughs> as one of their uh, one of the main you know trolls that they got here. You know. I get that they have big nose, but what makes me question is, like, who exactly are they targeting? Who's the demographic for this book? Because in some parts it feels juvenile enough to be, like, a kid's book. Mm-hmm. But then others, you know, other parts I would say, man, don't put a kid anywhere near this thing. Because, you know, there's some uh, there's some controversial stuff here, you know what I mean? So, pick nose is definitely an interesting <laughs> choice. And that, boy, you know, that did kinda... Wendy, yeah, boy did Wendy like oh. to draw big noses. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, the, the trolls, they're just awesome. I love the way that – and they're not like giants. They're just oh, like these squat little critters here. Not, not little critters, but squat squat characters. Um, and, you know, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, Picknose does sound juvenile here, and it reminds me of, you know, some of the contemporaries to ElfQuest, things like Cerebus, uh, where some of that is wildly mature and some of it is very silly. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I go to the Ninja Turtles. I mean, that – looks like something that would uh and maybe this is just hindsight um from you know the cartoon and the archie stuff uh that just seems like it would be right up a kid's alley you know well sure original teenage mutant ninja turtles was uh with no laughing matter i'll tell you that exactly exactly but like as a kid you'd see that and be like oh that's cool you Absolutely. know so it, it, there, there is that odd uh dissonance there um so we do meet pick nose right and Cutter tells him the situation, and Picknose is basically like, well, sucks to be you, <laughs> and tells him <laughs> to get out. Uh, now, the elves pack a wolf's uh, 
Well, the pack of wolves surrounds uh, Picknose and his brethren, and uh, that's all it takes for Picknose to change his tune. Uh, <laughs> Cutter insists uh, Picknose uh, escort his tribe to Greymung, who is the king of the trolls. And begrudgingly, that's exactly what Picknose does. And that's where this issue leaves off. I like this. So there was a lot to there oh, was a lot to digest. So you get to see where the elves come from. I mean, they come from the castle. Uh, you know, you get to see the humans are who are just these, you know, religious obsessed demonologists basically who, you know, who burn down their home and of course they they go on the run because you know they committed <laughs> they basically committed committed murder to one of the sure. humans. And now they have to rely on, you know, someone who's basically not their friend, the trolls to uh, to help them out. So mm-hmm. It's one of these, be careful who, what you wish for and how you treat everybody because you might need them one day. And boy, these elves all of a sudden need the trolls in the worst kind of way. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in issue two in the, care, in the, uh, down in the caves, brother. We'll see how the caverns mm-hmm. treat these, uh, these elves. <laughs> but if you followed us through with uh, Moratory Mondays, you'll know that that's not the end of the story here. We like to go through things page by page and uh, cover to cover and... Uh, Look at some of the uh, the ephemera and some of the advertisements and some of the things that put us into the gestalt of when these books hit the shelves or hit the stands here. Um, now, this has a letters column, or at least the uh, you know the what will become the letters column, and uh, it is uh, creatively called Quests and Answers. And uh, this time out, it's more of an introduction to the concept of ElfQuest uh, and to the creators of ElfQuest, and we learn a little bit about how. Wendy and Richard Peeney met. And uh, I was actually reading through one of the gatherums uh, the other day, and they were asked how they met, and uh, the, the note says that they looked at each other and said, whose turn is it to tell it this time? Because I guess this is the question they get <laughs> all the time. Uh, now, we'll tell that story one more time as well, and uh, if, they ever, if they ever grace us with their presence, we'll probably ask them to tell it as well. Oh, you got uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> you almost have to at this point. Now, while in college, Richard was reading a particular issue of Silver Surfer. This was Silver Surfer issue five with an August 1969 cover date. When on the letters page, he saw a missive by one Wendy Fletcher. Now, she was taking Stan Lee to task on his betrayal of the titular surfer. Uh, an excerpt from that letter says, Stan, my dear sweet fellow, what bitter streak of melancholia lurks within the folds of thine ever-hallowed noodle, ever, ever-hallowed noodle, not hallowed. Uh, I, believe, I believe in heroic suffering and all, but this is ridiculous. Do you realize that for all practical purposes, your adorable Silver Surfer should have died of a broken heart by now? Because <laughs> Silver Surfer is kind of a sad sack. Um, now, in a 2008 interview with Mr. Media, Richard Peeney would say, It was a very prescient letter. It was sensitive and compassionate, and I really liked what it said. I also appreciated that it was written by a female. At that time, there were three women reading comics in all of the world, and so here was a letter from one of them. So. That's true. That's true. You know, uh, especially when you think of a uh, something as heavy and melancholy as Silver Surfer Silver back Surfer. in '69. Yeah. I mean, that was some drivel right there. Just to think that <laughs> that a woman would, you know, occupy a space that sold Silver Surfer number one would would be ridiculous back then. But uh, I guess he knew where his heart was right away. Wait a second. There's a woman in the world who reads Silver Surfer. I must marry her. Yes. Now, it's hard to really, you know, wrap our heads around it today, but back then, you know, letters pages were a real thing, and uh, 
correspondents wouldn't just leave their names, but they would have their full addresses published. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't, I, I like, I wouldn't want my email address published in the comic book that I am, much less my home address. I think that um, should be mandatory in social media. If you're ballsy enough to <laughs> become a keyboard hero, everything should be tagged with your address. Back it up there, Chief. There you go. But, uh, like, if you look through some of your old comics here, you'll and the letters pages uh, in particular, you will see some full addresses. Um, and... When I do stuff like on Chris's on Infinite Earths where I where I include letters pages, I sometimes have that crisis of conscience. Like, should I put this up with full addresses? Even though, I mean, these people wrote these letters in 1960 something, so I'm sure they're not living there anymore. And if they are, I think they'd just be wowed that someone cared enough to look for them. But that, that, um, would, that would be an interesting thing to try out. You know what I mean? To actually write or call these people <laughs> on their address. <laughs> grab, grab a book from the 70s and just write some people in these yes. letter columns. See what happens. <laughs> Yeah, so, so uh, Mr. Smith, uh, do you still enjoy Vartox as a side character in Superman? Oh. Yes, now, I uh, do. Back to, <laughs> yes. Uh, back to that, uh, back to that uh, bit with uh, Richard at Mr. Media. He says, I wrote a letter back, and lo and behold, got a response. So imagine that. He wrote to this address in a comic book, and that person at the other end wrote back. Holy so, cow. Yes, they began a correspondence cross-country, and soon after that, they decided to meet. And that's literally how we met. Uh, now, people meet online all the time, and there are websites dedicated to making that happen, but back in the late 60s, this was a very, very rare thing. Oh, yeah, if this happened in 2020, man, uh, you know, Richard be me too on the, in a hurry on this one. <laughs> it's just another day. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, in a 1981 interview with Gary Groth of the Comics Journal, Richard discusses running up a $700 phone bill on MIT's phones. He was attending MIT. MIT. Um, he took out a loan from the college and paid it back gradually. So running up a $700 phone bill back oh, in 1981. Man, just think about that, man. First, when you were seeing yeah. your, your loved ones, I mean, you know, you, you want to be on the phone. You want to be in touch. You want to spend time with each other. But let's be honest here. How, how much of the early, early phone conversations about, you know, three weeks into your relationship did you truly remember or enjoy? You're sort of going <laughs> through the motions. And poor old Richard here. to know each other. Yep. Yeah, is <laughs> racking up $700. Because sometimes you're, you know, you're on the phone, you know. What are you doing? I don't know. What are you doing? How's everything? Great. How's everything there? Great. You know what I mean? $700 yep. later on MIT. Yikes. <laughs> it must have been love, Richard. <laughs> It must have been, because they would eventually get married during the summer of 1972. This was after nearly four years of correspondence. So, that's cool. slow burn to get there, but they got there. That's um, cool, man. I, I dig that's, that. That's, a, that's an awesome story. Absolutely. That's a wild, wild stuff here. Um, this uh, Quests and Answers page also discusses how Marvel initially passed on ElfQuest. So, that's uh, maybe a little bit of egg on their face. Uh, maybe not. Who knows? But... Uh, I, I do I do appreciate that they that they do mention that here, um, and they own it, you know. Well, they're publishing so, uh, the comic at this time, so it's okay. Yeah, you know, they'll take one for sure. They'll take one for the team here. But uh, that is the letters page, and we will get deeper into the letters pages because if I'm remembering right, and it has been a long time since I flipped through some of these, but uh, I do believe that the letters page is a regular thing for ElfQuest where. With Strike Force Moratori, it's a you know once every eight or nine issues you get Absolutely. you get a few very strange letters. Um, Elfquest got letters, I believe, so we'll have some fun with that as we move forward. <laughs> um, we've got bullpen bulletins, which are quite a bit different. Uh, if you're listening to Moratori Mondays, these are a little bit different. 
this one opens up with an apology from the epic editor, uh, Archie Goodwin. And uh, you want to walk us through this apology? <laughs> well, let me bring it up here. So poor old Archie Goodwin. God bless him. Clearly, he doesn't want to, uh, you know, he doesn't want to promote anything to do with Marvel's epic line. So, you know, he says that the last time that editor-in-chief Jim Shooter let me use this space, he said there were complaints that I contributed nothing to the glorified hype box for Epic's first newsstand comic, Grew the Wanderer. And that is a sin when you think about it, Chris, because mm-hmm. I'm a huge Grew fan. So he said, okay. I got a bit excited over the crack and, uh, you know, a crack at the big time. But he says he's sorry. And, uh, you know, he wants to promote Jim Starlin's Dreadstar, which is pretty awesome. And, uh, oh, you know, no. he says he, he says he won't promote it, but he says he won't say a word about it. But then in a thought balloon, he thinks it up. Issue number one. So, you know, <laughs> he is promoting by not promoting. So there you go. And then he also says that, you know, they got this comic as well, an ad at the bottom for Epic's ElfQuest, which is on right now, which is seems a little bit secondary, but when all of a sudden when you see that ad, man, that ad is balls on beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, Archie, if going by uh, some stuff that uh, Jim Shooter said on his blog, I guess Archie passed on being the editor of uh, of Epic until until Shooter ordered, offered it to somebody else. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then Archie's like, "What are you doing with my imprint?" Uh, <laughs> But yeah, he uh, he was uh, the guy in charge of the epic run, and he'll he'll probably loom a bit large throughout this series. Uh, we won't be making fun of Tom DeFalco because there really isn't much of a Tom DeFalco this time. So um, we do have some solicits here. Uh, it's not the mighty Marvel checklist uh, as it would become, but uh, there are three books here that get a mention. Uh, one of them is Daredevil issue number two twenty one. Um, doesn't, doesn't seem like. Doesn't seem like a whole lot goes on in this issue that's worth really breaking down, but it was written by Denny O'Neill, who we uh, sadly lost not too long ago. Uh, Do you have any uh, Denny O'Neill memories? And listen, I I grew up on some Neil Adams Batman, you know, late 70s, that type of thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you when you think about what he contributed, I mean, he was a big, big. Uh, you know, writer for Batman, a lot of his work. I mean, the guy created Raja Ghul and Talia. I mean, you know, yep. he, he's got, you know, he's got some major stakes Legacy. in this. And a, yep. Man, and his work there, and of course, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, oh my lord. I mean, some mm-hmm. of the some of the stuff that he did with DC was foundational. And man, I gotta say, Denny O'Neill, thank you, sir, for, you know, some amazing, amazing comics that were well ahead you know, of the, of the game of what people were doing back in the day, because that was some really, really strong adult writing back in a time no when you know, about we it. were producing popcorn at the at the uh, comic spinner rack. So Denny O'Neill mm-hmm. will be missed, sir. So legend in the business right there. Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, like you said, a foundation of, uh, of the uh, of the business uh, going forward, for sure. Um, another another uh, solicit we got here is Avengers number uh, 258. Uh, oh yeah, this is the event. Yeah, the Avengers versus Fire Lord, written by Roger Stern. Um, I I appreciate the Roger Stern run on Avengers. I, I've the Avengers were always kind of secondary to me. Um, I I was always into the X Men. The Avengers were just kind of there. Um, yeah. I, I I've rediscovered some of the uh, the late the the earlier Avengers stuff that I hadn't read. Um, I believe was Roger Stern responsible for the Under Siege storyline. I think I believe was. he was. I believe my my so Avengers, I, I love like, that. Yeah, 
That was good stuff. But I, like I said, I was intermittent when it came to Avengers for me. So, you know, Roger Stern's run, I can't really say that I, I really liked it. I was really into the, you know, the shooter run when when shooter was writing that stuff and he was doing stuff with Ultron. Yeah. When he was doing stuff with Ultron and those different things, man, it was just a magical stuff that was going on. But I don't really, uh, you know, I don't really have much super, super love other than to say that I enjoyed what I read back in the time by Stern. But, you know, nothing, nothing sticks out at me, really. Yes, when I when I was uh, getting into my superhero fandom, uh, I believe Bob Harris was writing the Avengers. Yes, uh, absolutely. And this is when they had the uh, they were all wearing like bomber jackets, and yeah. uh, it was just a very very odd team. It just didn't it didn't feel like you know World's Mightiest Heroes. It just oh listen, you wanted one of those bomber jackets, admit it. I love oh, them. I love I love the bomber jackets. I was bomber like, jackets yes. are awesome. Yes, bomber jackets are awesome. But this team was not. Uh, <laughs> I didn't care about Cersei or Quasar. I didn't care about them. Uh, they look. I they wouldn't. Looked awful damn cool in those those jackets, bro. They did. They they were they were some. Uh, they were some pretty good looking jackets. But uh, I I didn't get into the Avengers until uh, like in a, in a real hardcore way until the uh, Busick Perez uh, Heroes Return. So oh, yeah. that was like 1997. Wow. I Heroes Return. Look at you. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the good reboot. The good <laughs> I relaunch, know. Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, we also have Rawhide Kid number one, and uh, no, oh. this is not the Marvel Max version. Oh, so, so sad. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. So, so that is to say, there isn't much to say about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> now. We've got some ads, as always, and uh, the first one here is, uh, oh, it's a beauty. <laughs> it is the Nutty Payday Instant Win Game. Now, this is a candy bar ad here, and, uh, oh, boy, I mean, this is this is like one that'll, like, disturb your senses. There's just so much going on here. Um, rather than listing the prizes, they actually, like, have, like, little panels depicting the prizes here so you're just getting bombarded with the it looks almost like one of those captain olympic ads where you can see all the <laughs> things you could turn in your points for you could just see all this cool stuff that you could win and uh the art here looks like the campbell's soup kids like where they're where they're kind of <laughs> like pudgy face they're kind of like blushing <laughs> it just there, really strikes some... me as being there's some major stuff you can win, though, because, I mean, usually when yeah. you had these you know, sweepstakes, there were, you know, you had like a monetary prize as number one. Then you might have like a gift pack as number two. But these things are heavyweight stuff here. So let's go through the mm-hmm. prizes. I mean, yes. uh, let me see. So you had an Apple IIe computer system. Think about that for a second. 128K memory. That was not cheap at the time, bro. <laughs> no, I'm telling you right now, and that was a grand prize. And I can see, just imagine, did anybody ever win these things? That's what I would like to know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I digress. Sure. Then you had a lightweight bicycle. You could actually have a 10-speed bike with, mm-hmm. you know, with side pull caliper brakes. This is awesome. <laughs> then you had the Minolta. Get this now. A Disc 5 camera. Yes, sir. For maximum exposure. Just imagine when you take those. You didn't have your cell phone back in the day, kids. No. But you were the king of the party if you won the fourth prize, Minolta Disc 5 camera. And then, of course. 186 of them, yeah. Yeah. And this one, the fifth prize was of no use to me. So it was an Emerson AM FM headphone radio <laughs> now the problem where i lived was that amfm you know had really crappy connection in parts of newfoundland so half the time this uh, thing would be useless so unless you had a walkman or something like that you were you're out of luck you were just hearing 
So, you know, but point was, it comes with an attached belt clip. I <laughs> guarantee you. Then you had the Bushnell sports view telescope. Now I never really got in and I, you know what? None of my friends even really ever used a telescope. Did you have a telescope? You know, I had like a toy telescope that came with like, Oh yeah. It looked like a, uh, like one of those slides you'd put under a mic- microscope. Where, like, yes. you can, oh, like, yeah. God, you put yes. it in there and you'd see like the reflection of a constellation, but I never, I never had any, I, I, I grew up in New York city, so it's like, you couldn't really see much in the sky anyway, but, uh, yeah, I never, I, I always thought telescopes looked cool and it looked like something that you'd see, uh, like Mr. Drummond would have on his, uh, on his balcony <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I would always exactly. think it looked really cool, but yeah, never, never enough to actually, you know, put it on my Christmas list or circle it in the wish book. It was like one of those things that you'd spy on the next door neighbor with or something. You know what I mean? Wait a second. Not that I did that. <laughs> I'll edit that out. Kim was beautiful. What? Hey, wait a second here. And then, of course, one of the first prizes, the – now get this, a stereo system. Now, everybody knows back in the day that you needed a stereo system complete with a cassette deck and an AM-FM tuner, a quartz tuner at that. And did that thing as well have like a – Yes, it had a turntable as well. It looks like a turntable on top, yeah. And a giant set of speakers because, boy, you did not have a sound system if you had wimpy little speakers. No, sir. You had to have these nope. giant, giant floor <laughs> speakers back in the day because it produced the best sound. And, of course, you could not ask for better than Akai. <laughs> what? <laughs> I never heard of that brand before. Me neither. The Akai yeah. System 7 stereo. <laughs> Now, now it's interesting because you know you had nutty, you know it was the it was payday, the bar payday. Yeah. Now, we didn't get payday here in Newfoundland, so okay. I I only tried payday when I visited like a Dollar General when I went to when I went to U.S. on one of my Florida vacations, and I couldn't wait because I saw these things advertised. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You had butternut and you had milkshake and you had zero and all these other bars, and I grabbed a payday, actually a couple. And I could not stand them. They tasted like crap. Yeah, not my my wife loves paydays. I do not. No. Yeah. They they make my teeth hurt. <laughs> yes, they're they're overly crunchy. They're like you like they're not a chocolatey experience. They're like more of a solid hardcore peanut taste, which is not what I really wanted. I don't know what I was expecting. So payday gets a boo for me. But the beauty part, if you had this ad. You got a manufacturer's coupon, and boy, did you get value, because if you went to your candy store (laughs) with this coupon, you got an an incredible – now get this. Hold on to your purse or your wallet, folks, because you could get 17 cents off. That's right, 17 cents off your next payday. You have to buy two, though. You have to buy two. Or you had to buy two. (laughs) (laughs) Save 70 – who saved – like what kind of arbitrary number is 17 cents at the time? You'd be kicked out of your five and ten, and <laughs> be like, "Get out of here with that!" Oh man, there was a consolation prize for this too. I guess like you'd see something on your wrapper here to say if you won. Um, now, I guess if you spell the word "nutty" with your wrappers somehow, I guess I guess the wrappers have a different letter on them. So oh, yeah, if you're able you to go. spell the word "nutty," you can win one of forty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. Nutty T-shirts. <laughs> hey, you know what? Hell with it. I would have took it. Yeah, well, why not fifty thousand? 
was that like <laughs> like if they if they printed one more shirt would they would that like up the cost of the of the print would that be like a whole extra day at the print shop or i bet you it was there's definitely some science <laughs> behind that other than that you know, you know what? It's one of these mental things. So, you know, there's a reason why when you go into a store that they don't have round numbers for things on sale. You know what I mean? Mm. This is why you see something that's four ninety seven, or you know, or if something was on clearance, you'd get the nineteen ninety nine. Yes, you know what I mean. So you get these these harsher numbers. So I think when you see nine 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 nine, it's more impactful than five zero 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 zero. And honestly, I think that's the the whole idea behind it. You know, it's just pure monetary psychology here but boy mm-hmm. that's a lot of friggin nutty shirts man there's got to be like a warehouse full of them right oh, it's almost yeah. gotta be i'm gonna search one oh. up on ebay just see if anyone had one of these oh. nutty shirts oh that'd who, be amazing or who got the akai stereo system i wonder if someone still have that <laughs> <laughs> it's in someone's basement right now <laughs> oh it, it's got like a it's it's someone's uh clothes hamper right now i think <laughs> Oh, jeez. Now we have another ad here. These are the Noxzema clear-up pads. I thought this was Stridex when I looked at it first. Man, if we were in the wrong business, brother, I guarantee you, if we knew what we were doing back in the 80s, we would have jumped all over (laughs) acne products. Yeah, no doubt about it. I I mean, I... I haven't been down that aisle in the the store in many, many moons, so I don't even know. (laughs) do, Do they still have... Like oh acne God, pads? Yes, they do still have they acne do. pads. Yes, wow. clear And is it, and and is it just like uh, is it just little like flattened cotton that's that's sitting in alcohol? <laughs> some of those, yeah. My my daughter actually has some upstairs. I'm like, wait a second, look, acne pads. I just want to try one just for old times' sake to get that stink on you. You know what I mean? <laughs> that sting and stink. <laughs> that, <yep>. Yes, <laughs> but really, really, it's just alcohol soaked sponges. You know what I mean? <laughs> that you splash on your zits and they dry them up. That was all. It was not rocket science. No. Uh, we also have an interactive ad where you can win a free Oreo tumbler. And you knew when you were when you were rifling through those secondhand bins <laughs> at the store that some idiot obviously completed the maze on this Oreo tumbler ad. I would. Now, you know, I look at the I look at this old Oreo wrapper, you know, and I, I miss it so much. Remember these yeah, bags where it would have I, like. Yeah. There was the bag, and it had that little like cardboard piece at the end yes, that like had beautiful. it held together. Oh man, now it's and I swear they changed it just so they could put less cookies in the damn package. Oh, at one hundred percent. There's always a you know when it comes to packaging. Obviously, I work in retail, and uh, you know packaging sizing is all the latest rage. You know what I mean? If you can get you know the same amount of money for much less, but make it appear that you're getting the same, that's that's the trick. That's the trick to retail that's right it. there. So, yeah, man crazy stuff here but did yes, you, you play you, oreo dunk by the way did you play did you order your oreo tumbler i did not i didn't either i, did I, I was never into the cookies and milk thing either that wasn't me either that always grossed me out I'm like, what um, the hell are you doing with milk number one i can't stand milk i don't care for it i don't i don't lust for it you know what i mean if i'm wanting something to drink it's going to be well back in the day it was obviously a coke or a pepsi before you know mm. You know, I, I lost multiple parents, or not, not, I mean, relative to diabetes, <laughs> until they figured it out. But, uh, no, milk was never something I reached for in the fridge. Come on, how, how cool were you to go over to your friend's house? Hey, man, you got any milk? Oh. <laughs> I, I don't even do milk with my cereal. I, I That grosses me out, just the idea of making whoa, whoa. something soggy. Hold on here. Hold on hmm. here. You don't do milk with your – what the hell do you put in your cereal? Nothing. I eat it dry. Shut your face. 
I do. I eat it dry. I oh, can't. Just the this very. This podcast is over. <laughs> my my sister would eat like fruity pebbles with uh with milk, right? Oh, oh my God! Now fruity. Okay, okay. So here's where I'm gonna rescind. Okay, this is where I'm gonna step <laughs> off my Canada U.S. thing. Because American fruity pebbles are something sent from bloody heaven. I absolutely love them. They're flat. They're crunchy. They're full of oh, enough sugar to knock over a horse. They are tasty. Mm-hmm. And that—that that is one thing where I'm going to completely agree with you, sir. No milk needed. But when you put it when you put it with milk, you're basically making cement. You are. Oh yes, God yes. You know, and like, and I remember like doing the dishes, and it would just be like clumps of this. <laughs> multicolored crud stuck in like the like that I have to chisel out of a bowl and it just made me want to puke. So that might have turned me off from the the whole concept of uh, cereal with milk. But uh, no, I uh, I don't I never dip donuts. I never dip cookies. I, I don't do cereal. It's foolishness. Yeah, and I mean, I and right now I'm I I only I, I'm I've, I've turned into a, a d bag in my elder years here. I I only drink almond milk. So. Oh. Yeah. Oh man, break out the d bag crown, almond milk tool bag. <laughs> I'm I'm the one buying the sugar free stuff and the almond milk and the uh, and the yoga mat. So yes, that's. <laughs> Oh man, the two people who are me. listening are no longer listening. That's terrible. They're done. They're done. Yes. <laughs> now, we have a comic strip, The oh. Adventures of the Quick Bunny. Oh, wait a minute now, here. Uh, yes, yes, it's uh the top of the 7th inning and the score is tied 5 to 5 and the Quick Bunny's in a slump. He's on the pitcher's mound and he can't throw a strike to save his life until he snorts some Nestle Quick. And uh, at which time uh, he's able to uh, at which time he's able to strike everyone out. He's able to hit home runs. He's able to slurp some milk or a chocolate drink and uh, and win the game. So uh, it works every time. I mean, you know what? I like quick. I'll, I'll be honest. I like quick. I like strawberry <laughs> quick. I liked all that stuff. I was definitely you know, that was the one thing where you could get me to drink milk if you had some quick handy. OK, so powder or syrup? No, it had to be syrup. Powder never okay. really uh, powder was never really a thing for us. So you know, I think when we did get into buying quick, it was short lived, and then they switched to the uh, the easier squeeze bottle type thing with the with the liquid. And I think we never gotcha. ever switched back. Mm. I know that when I when I had strawberry quick, it was always the liquid. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you I, don't have, I, I, you don't have had... any Everlast being you make me sick like strawberry quick. Something, <laughs> something get off my such and such. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's been a long time since I, I i i'll drink you know a couple of protein shakes every day which is powder and uh oh, yeah it's always uh you know you gotta have one of those special like shaker uh bottles with the little metal ball in it to break it up otherwise it's <laughs> otherwise it turns into that uh into like you know, turns into cement <laughs> turns you're, into, you're not one of those metal ball guys are you you're yeah. you're a protein powder guy, aren't you? Admit it. Yes, yes, I am. Oh, oh my God, the d bagness yes. that's happening here in this it's, podcast. Uh, yeah, my, my crown is growing. <laughs> it, is, it is growing something fierce. I might have two on it by the end of the show, but uh... <laughs> I double ball it, mine. You know, yes. just to make sure that that thing is compounded. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now we also have an ad with for Dorman cheese. Now, hmm. before we get into the Dorm- ad, what are your th- 
What are your thoughts on the individual wrapped cheese, like the Kraft Singles? Ah, uh, well, you know what? I grew up on that stuff, so I really have no. Uh, does it come any other way? Here in Canada, it's always individually wrapped. You can't buy a package of you know those cheese slices together, unless they're like the thicker, like deli go to the deli. sandwich type yeah. thing. Yeah. So I remember like I would always have these Kraft Singles growing up, and then one day I had like deli sliced cheese, and it was just like, what have I been eating? <laughs> oh oh no, you're you're damn right about I've that. Been Holy rubber. cow! <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't even seem real. You 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 switched well, to real cheese, and you're like, Stop. have you seen the videos where they try to like where they try to like burn it, like try to melt it, and it turns like into like black, just like a black sheet? Oh, yeah. Well, think about it. Whoa. Have you ever have you ever made a grilled cheese sandwich in the oven? Just put a piece of that processed cheese over a slice of bread and just let it bake? No, I, I actually don't do grilled cheese. <laughs> Too busy drinking my, that almond milk. Yeah, my, no, my my eating habits are very strange. I can't do like if if someone says, "Do you want a hamburger or a cheeseburger?" It's always hamburger. I can't do melted cheese on stuff. Not even I as can't a do melted. No, no, I can't do melted cheese. I can't do warm mayonnaise. Like I can oh, have mayonnaise fair. on a cold sandwich, but I can't have mayonnaise on anything hot. Yeah, yeah, no, um, you're right. That that totally kills the taste. Yeah, I'm here. I hear you so on that weird. one, brother. Gross. Yeah, but I've never. Uh, I, I everyone in my family likes melted cheese. I just the just the the what is it the texture of it just uh <laughs> it yeah it's, freaks it's, me out. it is gross yeah it is i, I will admit that I'm, I'm a grilled cheese fan but i hear mm-hmm. you on that all the way but now think about this with your dormant cheese you could have got some free marvel superhero secret wars puffy stickers and an album that's pretty yes. cool i would have been all Six over this UPC if we had that symbols. dormant cheese holy crap <laughs> that's a lot of cheese man there's 18 singles in every one with uh, you know six packages, so you, you're looking at over a hundred slices of cheese. You gotta you gotta yeah, work you your way through. So you know you know the game here. Clearly, by the time <laughs> that you gathered these, that this whole thing would be over. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's well, what yeah, they were banking on. Let's see here. The offer expires November 30th. This book came out in May, so that's six. You have six months to eat a hundred slices of cheese. So and that's a, that was very expensive. Yeah. So I'd, yeah. I, back then, that would have been $3 a pack, which was pretty expensive for a package of cheese. Mm-hmm. And think about those those package of stickers. You could get those at the Dollar General right now for $1. <laughs> yes. And that sticker album doesn't look like the regular size one. It's like a little tiny one that you'd see, you know, packaged with an action figure or something. It looks like a piece of paper folded in half. <laughs> yes, man. <laughs> He's got a dollar's, you know, $1.50's worth of product right there. And uh, you got to buy 100 slices of cheese. <laughs> oh, man, Spider-Man. If Spider-Man wasn't on this, I would have called foul on that one. But, hell, it was Secret Wars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, now this is a this is a, a, a food product that a superhero is promoting. Do you have any do you have any memories of other times where a superhero or a super character or larger than life superstar tried to sell you something to eat? Oh, it. I swear to this day that I've never had a better tasting French fry than Superman French fries. I, what? I, oh, they exist, my friend. Uh, okay, I gotta look that up. Superman yep, French it was. It, yep, it was in an odd store that I found it in. We didn't get all these things. Like we didn't get oh, dormant smoke. Cheese. Oh, yeah. they exist, baby. And Superman peanut butter. That I, I remember. Yeah, Superman peanut butter was uh, was a little bit longer shelf life than the French fries, but. They were just McCain's French fries put in a just a you know a sleeve. But the only thing with the French fries was that if you bought enough of these Superman French fries, you could get a free 
superpowers Clark Kent figure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think this was I think this was a Canada only thing. Oh, was it? Oh, On the package sense. here, it says Canada Fancy, Canada de Fantasy, French fries, patates frites. <laughs> I yeah, love so those things. They were to my childhood mind. They were amazing. I loved every bit of it. So that's wild. I'd never heard of that before. I never did get my Clark Kent figure, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> now they were they were paired with Superman peanut butter, which we we you know what that sort of came and went. It was like they accidentally got a case from the U.S. and they put it out and it was never again. <laughs> so, but I remember you could, used to be able to get Action Comics number one reprint with yes. uh, with a certain number of the uh, Superman peanut butter. So, and of course you had cereals, Chris. I mean, come on, I, I oh, used yeah. to eat Batman cereal and Mr. T cereal and whatever you know whatever whatever I could find. With the or the the God blessed awful C three POs, which I'll never forget. But yeah, oh yeah, I was hook line and sinker with all these bad things, man. If there was a character that I recognized, I bought that stuff right away. Wild stuff. I I, I noticed that uh like recently, well within the past couple of years, they've put a lot of uh a lot of the DC characters uh, into the freezer section here. We have uh, like. Like Harley Quinn ice cream and Batman ice cream and uh, uh, Superman and Wonder Woman ice cream. Very weird stuff. Of course, it, it all hits when I'm on a diet, so I don't get to try any of it. But Well, it's, I, uh, I, during my last uh, trip to Florida, which probably be my absolute last trip to Florida, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> possibly, if it still exists. But anyway, uh, the last time I was there, they had just launched those things. And I was looking at the whole okay. freezer going, oh, my God. Now, we're on vacation. Yep. I got nowhere to put this stuff. But, man, I wanted to buy them all. They looked incredible. If that was kid me, that would be bought. I would have been begging my on my hands and knees. So I was just trying to coax my kids into it. Hey, look, Batman on ice cream. Look at that. Wow. And they didn't bite. It was such a sad reality. <laughs> I, I do remember the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cereal uh, back in the oh, day, yeah. which Absolutely. which was which was not good. Um, oh, no. But oh, uh, no. you know, it's you always begged your mom for it. It was a uh, it was basically like what like checks with yes. bad marshmallows because it was supposed to be like Ninja Nets is what they called it, and uh, and it would have those awful marshmallows. Um, I, I remember I, the. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Good. No, no, I, I was just going to say I love Pac-Man cereal, which was basically... I was a just com- about to go into a video game one. Yes. <laughs> so Pac- Pac-Man cereal was basically Canadian corn pops, which were round, not like corn-shaped. Uh, okay. And they had like Lucky Charms marshmallows packed in with them, which were Marshmallow Ghost. And man, oh, what a delicious combo that was. Whoa. Man, we bought that for years. That thing, like Pac-Man cereal, lasted for a while in Canada. That wasn't something that lasted six months and disappeared. That thing was on shelves for years here. I, I, I'm looking at them right now. How about that? I, I, I this Mr. Rogers buying it on, on on Google Images. That's funny. He's he's sta- <laughs> Mr. Rogers is standing next to Pac-Man and Donkey Kong cereal. How about that? Oh, no. Um, I do remember the Nintendo cereal system. Yes. Which yes. Came with two flavors. You'd have the Mario flavor and the Zelda flavor, and two yep. like skinny bags in the same box. <laughs> yeah, it was it was so a weird, weird packaging thing, but I think the concept of it. I mean, this came out at the time I think when Captain N was on TV, so you know, the the Nintendo thing was all the rage when you had Mario yeah, it was and like the, the Lincoln yeah, Zelda. Yeah, the Super Mario Super Show was on, yeah. and yeah, it was, it was big stuff. big stuff back then for sure. Man, um, now like as we mentioned here, this Dorman Cheese ad is uh is a Secret Wars ad. 
So do we have any uh, any memories of this uh, traumatic <laughs> event? <laughs> so, so super, super Secret Wars two. I was gonna say uh, superpowers because I want to. It just had a default. But uh, Secret <laughs> Secret Wars two is considered the bane of Marvel's existence back in the day. I mean, this is one lambasted, you know, crossover, and it's massive in size. I mean, this is one Huge. of those things that compares to Crisis when you start collecting all the pieces and parts that uh, that made up this crossover. It's and like I mean, two look, omnibuses. Oh, yeah. my God. But, Chris, these crossovers are – they don't have anything to do with Secret Wars 2 than me and you right now. I mean, they it's were – It's true. Yeah. Holy cow. These could be just single issues with Secret Wars 2 splashed over the top of them. Absolutely, like – only several, only two of them, or several of them, you know, actually related to the main story. The other ones were just basically, you know, they had a panel or two that said, you know, the Beyonders here, and that's it. Yeah, they were the what did they, they call them? The Red Sky crossovers for Crisis. Yes. It was a, just a regular issue, but the sky would be red because Crisis was going on. I I like so I'm, I listened to a podcast by Rob Liefeld. Don't judge me. Called Robservations. Mm-hmm. It's his new one, and of course, he did this entire thing on Jim Shooter, which fascinated me during his time as editor in chief. So they were talking about when they brokered the deal for Secret Wars. Okay. And, you know, the reason why they brokered this deal was, you know, Marvel freaked out when they saw the success of superpowers that Kenner had. You know what I mean? And, I mean, yeah. all of a sudden you had superhero toys the first time really since Mego, you know, back mm-hmm. in the 70s. You had these, you know, these five-inch superhero figures. You had Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Robin. You had the Hall of Justice. You had the Batcopter, the Batmobile. I mean, it was huge. So, of course, Marvel was wanted to like – the- yeah, this is during like the boy toy boom, you know, yes. with uh, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Star Wars. So this was this was big business. This was huge business. I mean, you know, action figures were massive money back in the time. So, of course, Secret Wars did, you know, did a or superpowers, I should say, did a crossover that was, you know, basically about the toy and it was to be bundled and packaged as part of a toy. It wasn't considered canon. However, mm-hmm. they wanted Marvel to do the same thing. Now, under Shooter. He wanted to put this together, and of course he took over full charge of this. And this is the one thing that <laughs> that actually led to his demise, believe it or not, because mm-hmm. when he took over Secret Wars, Secret Wars the original was an incredible success, according to Liefeld. I mean, this thing changed changed their game. You know what I mean? There was so much going on; it made so much money for them, and Shooter's stock rose incredibly because of this crossover because now he had brokered deals with toy companies with other merchandise i mean secret wars was splashed over everything they had the action figures which were i mean poor man's imitation of of superpowers i mean if you saw a superpowers figure you know they had the action you know you press their legs or you press their arms and they did an action you know what i mean secret wars basically had different heads on the exact same body repainted Yes, <laughs> and they came with shields. So every single person, this didn't happen in the in the comic book. I no. mean, secret. What, how long was Secret Wars? Was it twelve issues? The original. I believe so. The first one, yeah. Yeah, and Secret Wars two, <laughs> which was nine issues, thankfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I always I always enjoyed the uh, Secret Wars two because to me all these things crossing over was a huge deal. And when you consider everything that they had before that, I mean, contest of champions, you had Secret mm-hmm. Wars and. Secret Wars was May of 84, and then they followed it up quickly with the Secret Wars 2. I mean, it was a massive success. It was July 85 that this thing came out. So Yeah. And, uh, well, anyway, the story is not as cool as the other one where Beyonder takes the, the team to a, uh, you know, basically a battle, battle world. world and has, yeah. yeah. 
and has all our, our heroes fight it out. Nope, in this one, good old Beyonderer comes to Earth seeking enlightenment and actually <laughs> turns himself into like a disco-suited, jerry-curled hipster. Bert Convy. Yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and he walks the street trying to find love and meaning in life, and it did not resonate one bit with the uh, with the Marvel Universe. So the Marvel fans, I should say, they hated it. And it's one of those ones that you bring up uh, you know, from time to time. I have fond memories of it because it was a big deal to me. I thought it was cool. Sure. Oh, my God, look at the Beyonder. This guy is awesome. You know, look at that jumpsuit. It's white. It's awesome. But no, it, it was not awesome, Chris. And, uh, you know, for the sake of a few action figures, to sell a few figures and all that type of stuff, uh, I don't know if Secret Wars 2 was worth it, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, good, good memories. Good memories. I And, and my memories of Secret Wars 2, the... I might actually have like the, the better end here because all of my memories are the ads because I, I wasn't reading Marvel in, in 1985, 1986. I was only you know, five or six years old. Um, didn't d- discover the ElfQuest books until probably 89, 90. So I was like nine or 10 years old. So I, Secret Wars 2 was, you know, uh, for, a, for a 10-year-old kid, that was a distant memory. Um, oh, yeah. See, and then going Secret, going Secret into – Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Secret Wars 2 had that awesome cover where the Beyonder – is, uh, you know, he's in giant form and he's smashing through some building and reaching down at like diminutive, you know, Marvel Universe who are fighting him. Mm-hmm. And I just love that cover. I don't know if it was issue eight or seven, but uh, mm-hmm. man, that thing brought me to the pay window every time. So Jim Shooter stole my money. <laughs> he got gotcha. you. He got gotcha. <laughs> Anyway, were you going to uh, say I'm sorry? Oh, um, I was going to say that, you know, going into the speculator, speculator age here, um, any book that was like just a couple of years old was way out of my price range. So, I think for me, a lot of these milestone series is that even we look back now on as not being all that great were like heightened in importance and urgency oh, yeah. because of uh, because of the folks at Wizard and uh, because uh, the, the the people who, who would uh, put a, an issue of Secret Wars 2 on the wall at the comic shop with a $10 price tag and uh, <laughs> just really hyped up my expectation of what uh, what to expect from something like this. Um the uh, the Marvel Universe trading cards would would uh, have cards dedicated to the you know the big events like Secret Wars and uh, Atlantis attacks and the Evolutionary War and stuff like that. So I always had this weird feeling that these were much more important than they actually were. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and and I wasn't yet cynical, so I didn't think that I didn't think that it was possible to write a bad comic book back then. It was just like. Everything was good. <laughs> because... well, well, there's there's nine <laughs> issues out there to prove you wrong. <laughs> I think there might be a few more than that to prove me wrong over the over the past eighty years. But but uh, I think I think that'll do us here. I think we did uh, we did uh, ElfQuest number one cover to cover. Uh, had a great time revisiting this one. I'm really looking forward to uh, to hitting the ground running with this series here. Um, this one is uh, it's much more personal for both of us, I believe, than uh, than Moratori is. Um, where we do love that series, this one uh, this one just feels kind of like home. Um, so I, I think uh, this is going to be a fun trip here, um, and uh, really look forward to more. We hope you guys uh, enjoyed this little peek into the future, into our future, and uh, enjoy enjoyed what you heard and uh, are looking forward to hearing more. Uh, definitely. We would like you to reach out to us, uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
Um, you wanna you wanna hit it up with some plugs uh, before uh, I take it home? Oh, I sure would, kind sir. You can find me over on the Twitter at Charlton underscore Hero. Uh, you can also find my uh, retro ramblings over on the hashtag Superhero Satellite over on WordPress. So you can check that some of that stuff out if you like comic books, if you like toys, movies, all that stuff. You'll see some of my uh, my ramblings there uh, as well. Uh, you can find me over on Moratory Mondays with Mr. Chris Sheehan as well. And you could also follow the Podsman over on the Radlish and Broadcasting Network on the W2M Network where we cover some professional wrestling as well. So that's me. Very cool, very cool. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Um, you can find my writings at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. I'm currently in a bit of a spat with Blogger because uh, Blogger no <laughs> longer wants to – they no longer want to batch upload images. So, uh, ooh. Yes. Uh, now, m- my site might not be much to look at, but uh, it takes a good two hours to do a post there every day. And uh, now I can only upload one image at a time. And if you've ever looked at my site, you'll know that my posts usually have between 20 and 30. Oh. So instead of, yes, instead of, you know, the upload process and the placement process taking two minutes, now it takes about 15. And uh might not sound like much, but when you're, you know, two hours deep into a post and you have to do another 15 minutes just to put pictures in, really turns you off. Um, Come over you, to WordPress, my young one. I I am probably headed there as soon as I can <laughs> push my fears aside. I, you know, I, I've I just surpassed 800,000 views there. Oh, good man, <laughs> good job, brother. Congrats. And, it, and you know, I don't know how many actual human beings I saw it, but, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of bots and a lot of people who were looking for uh, crap from the CW and just might as well word crisis <laughs> that found it. their way to my site. But uh, it is what it is. Um, but I, there's a lot of content. There. There's, uh, there's well over a million words. Uh, there's something like 40,000 images. So to move it over to a different site is kind of scary, but we're going to see what we have to do. Um but you can find me there still every day, chrisisunderfinitearths.com. Um, chrisandreggie.com, I don't know how much, how much longer that domain is going to stay live. That was not something I had accounting access to. If that does expire and I'm able to reclaim the name, I will do so. But for now, um, I'm just directing everything to chrisisunderfinitearths.com and chrisandreggie.podbean.com because that ain't going anywhere. Um, what else? What else? I think... I think that's probably about it. Uh, we thank you so, so much for hanging out with us today. Again, we hope you're enjoying uh, this little different uh, peek into the future. And uh, also, we hope you're looking forward to the return of Moratory Mondays in the next few days. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, and again, thank you so much. Um, and uh, we will talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>